well, I am delighted to say that on the Godcast with me today is uh, writer and broadcaster uh, Ian Dale. Ian is one of Britain's leading political commentators. He writes for numerous newspapers and he's been on shows such as Jeremy Vine, uh, Good Morning Britain and uh, Newsnight and lots more. He currently works for LBC Radio where he presents uh, an evening show on there. He's covered two, uh, at least two presidential elections and uh, I'm really delighted to finally get you on here Ian and thank you for your patience. I'll explain that later but uh, <laughs> why are you today? Uh, I'm very well, thank you. Uh, sitting here in Tunbridge Wells, preparing for lockdown. <laughs> well, I was gonna, that was going to be my kind of opening gambit. So um, before I get on to some of the political stuff, Ian, we'll just uh, perhaps talk about you uh, for a few moments. So you say you're, you're in Tunbridge Wells. Is that a place that you grew up or where, where was uh, your early life? Um, I grew up in a little village in North Essex near Saffron Walden called Ashton. Uh, grew up on a farm, had an idyllic childhood. I don't think I could have had a better childhood. Uh, went to the local primary school, then the local comprehensive school, even though my parents tried to make me go to a private school in Cambridge. Um, I passed all the entrance exams, but I kept thinking, why, why am I going to this school when all my friends are going to another school? So in the end, I refused to go. So I went to the local state school and um, I've ended up in Tunbridge Wells because my partner, who I met uh, 26 years ago, lives here, always has done. And um, so I moved here in 1997 and have never left. It's not somewhere right. that I, I have to say, being an Essex boy, living in Kent is a bit of an issue. Um, we, we, we have a house in Norfolk as well. And ideally, I would like to move there, lock, stock and barrel. But it's a bit difficult when you do a radio show in London every evening. You can't yeah. really commute from Norfolk. Yeah. And uh, your, your time on the farm, were you, were you hands on? Um, well, of course, I grew up, I was born in 1962, and all of my wider family were farmers. And uh, it was expected that I would then grow up to be a farmer and take over the family farm. That's just what happened. Mm. Um, but I knew from the age of five that I did not want to be a farmer. That didn't mean to say that I didn't do stuff on the farm. Um, on a Saturday morning, I would be paid 10 pence an hour to muck out the pigs. <coughs> Um, I would drive the combine harvester at harvest for unsupervised from the age of eight. Um, I would sort of go plowing, drive the tractor, do all sorts of different things. And I, yeah. I didn't not enjoy it, but I just knew that it wasn't what I wanted to do um, in the end. I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew it wasn't that. No, it reminds me of my childhood. And I, I grew up in a village and, uh, and uh, my summer school holidays were often on top of a um, on a hail bale, being helping the farmer carry the hay into the village uh, with no risk assessments that didn't exist. Well, exactly. <laughs> My father would be sent to prison now for what he did. But like, all, all of the kids in the village would come and um, help with the harvest. They would be on top of the corn trailer as it drove along the road. Um, and I mean, the health. Nobody really thought about all the health and safety risks because if we had done, we wouldn't have allowed any of it. We we did stubble burning, and I would I would be driving my father's uh, pickup truck with somebody on the back uh, holding a, a sort of a rag full of fire going around the field and there'd be about 10 kids on the back as well. And I remember once we actually got surrounded by the fire and I just had to shout to them, take cover, I'm going for it and, and just drove straight through the flames. But I mean, but it, I mean, if you talk to any of those kids now, 
they would say that was part a, a yeah. core part of their childhood and it partly made them who they are today kids I, nowadays don't have that anymore no no we i've got friends who, who run a farm and, and it's just it, you know it's perhaps not as bad as that as you've described but you know they still uh, you know take a few chances good can i ask in um uh in my experience quite often farming communities have normally got kind of um uh, a religious undertone quite often the farming community are quite close to the church was there a connection with your farm and the, ch uh, and, and the church at all yes because our land actually almost surrounded the church um the in this village of ashton in the in the, well, the 14th century the, the the plague hit and the village had been um all surrounding the church but because of the plague the, the village sort of moved about a quarter of a mile down into the valley and um, this field has still got all the, all the old um, sort of remnants of some of the buildings and it's become a site of special scientific interest now. So, um, I, and my, my mother, I mean, in small villages, the church is not just a religious institution, it's a social institution. And my mother used to do, she was on the flower rotor, um, she she would go to church, um, maybe not quite as often as, as others, but um, she did go. And we were, the church was part of our childhood. It was a Church of England primary school that I went to. Um, and it, it was, and there was quite a lot of religious things that happened. We'd all go to the Harvest Festival, there's obviously the carol service and all the rest of yeah. it. And um, the, the building at the bottom of my father's uh, farm road used to be a Sunday school. Um, and I, I can remember going there one, I mean, it closed very, during my childhood, but it, it was an integral part of village life. Mm. And as children, we were given the choice. We either became bell ringers or we went into the choir and we chose bell ringing, um, it, which one thing we didn't like about it, it meant that we missed, the practice was on a Monday evening. So we missed the Waltons, which, um, <laughs> we didn't like, and that was the days before video recorders. <laughs> and I think we regarded, if I'm honest, we regarded bell ringing as the lesser of two evils. I think <laughs> the choir consisted of about three people and we didn't really want to be on public display singing. Um, it would have been a bit like the Von Trapp family singers because they're, 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 well, there were only three of us, but yeah, yeah. so, so I became a campanologist and um, I haven't done it since I was 18, but I suspect ah. if I had to, I could pick it up again. Ah, well, you must try that out sometime. Um, I, uh, I, I quite often people say to me as a vicar, oh, the kids don't come anymore and what's going on, but I, I kind of think it's kind of um, it's a phase of life. Do you, do you think those early days and time at church stay with people for a lifetime clearly they're clear in your mind well i think it partly depends on who the vicar is in in these churches because you can make churches um, attractive to younger people i remember when our longtime vicar walter lane retired he'd been there for i don't know 30 or 40 years he was a, literally a village institution and the guy that came in to take over from him was someone called Michael York, who eventually rose up the Church of England to be, a, I'm not sure he became a bishop, but he was whatever one off a bishop was, he was it in Kings Lynn, I think. Um, and Archdeacon, he, I think, is the term. I, I'm not sure whether he was, I, anyway. Um, yeah. He was quite young, um, had a very uh, vivacious wife, and he rung the changes basically which as you can imagine in a very conservative with a small c village didn't necessarily go down well with everybody but one of the things he did was he had a service for animals 
and we all took our dogs and cats and rabbits uh, into the church for this service. Um, and I, I mean, I must have been 10 or 11, but I will remember that till my dying day. Yeah. And I think it's things like that where you just, that you get away from all the ritualistic side, which for children is just boring and also quite intimidating in many ways. Why would they want to attend church if it is just a load of adults sort of chanting and, and singing songs or hymns which you're not really into and you just get really bored? So I think it, it is possible to make things um, sort of so, so that younger kids can enjoy them, um, yeah. quite difficult. And have you, uh, and there's, um, I'm sure there will have been occasions where you've stepped back into church as an adult. Does, is it, is a church a place you, you like, you enjoy being in or, or not? Because the church was part of my upbringing, um, it will always be part of my life. Um, I'm not, a, I'm not a religious person. I was confirmed into the Church of England, but I've, I've always struggled to reconcile the logical side of my brain with the other side of my brain in that, um, I kind of want a bit of proof and I understand the meaning of the word faith and, and in many ways I wish I had it. Over the years I've tried on several occasions to, um, I mean, I, when I, was, I was open to persuasion. I remember at university a lot of my friends were involved in the chaplaincy which is now called the multi-faith centre at the University of East Anglia and I would go along to a lot of their functions and I could see what they got out of their faith. And I really tried to understand it and be open to it, but I, I, I've never really got there um, for, for the reason that I, I kind of think, well, no one can prove to me that God exists, but I can't prove that God doesn't exist. So I'm not an atheist. I, I would class myself as an agnostic. It's sort of the, the liberal Democrat position of religion, I suppose, completely on the fence. <laughs> And um, there's part of me that would like to move off that fence one way or yeah. the other, but I don't think it, it will ever happen. So I, I'm slightly jealous of people who've got a, a strong faith in, in some ways because it does, it, it roots them in, in an existence which possibly I don't have. Now, I don't feel that I need a religion to instruct me on moral values or anything. Yeah. I think I, my parents did that and I, I think I lead... I mean, with one or two aberrations, probably, I, I think most of my morals are based on Christian morals. Um, and so to get back to your question, uh, yes, I do go to church um, occasionally. Um, it's usually if other people are going for whatever reason. I mean, it's sort of churches, weddings, funerals, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and I, when I die, I wish to have a Church of England funeral service. I would like to have been, um, when I had, I mean, we had a civil partnership in 2008, uh, converted it to a marriage in 2015. I would love to have had that in a church. Now you might say, well, what an absolute hypocrite you are, and you'll be absolutely right. Um, but it, it, it is the tradition for me that is the important thing. I hate going to a crematorium for a funeral, for example. I, I literally would rather never go to one again, but given the age I've got to, as you can imagine, increasingly I, I am going to funerals. Um, yeah. And weddings to me don't feel right unless they are conducted in a church. Funerals don't have the same meaning if, they, if they're conducted in a quick half hour service in a crematorium, <coughs> crematorium where it's just like a conveyor belt of funerals. I hate yeah. that. 
No, that's really music to my ears because we, you know, as clergy and some of my friends, we have a debate. Most most of our funeral services sadly no longer take place in a church. Most of them are at the crematorium. Mm. Uh, if the, if if a if a Christian minister is involved in, at all, and uh, you know, I've been to secular weddings and secular funerals, and uh, I, I I perhaps would say this is a priest, but I entirely agree with you. Uh, there's something just not quite hitting the. The, the mark for me um ian just before we leave uh, the church behind um so to speak um do you do you think the church has still got an important role to play uh in society and even in the political kind of um ether out there well i think it's always difficult for the church to uh interfere with politics because politicians politicians don't like it when bishops get very exercised about some policy that they're implementing and i can understand why that is um, I, I think sometimes um, people do get too political in sermons. Uh, I remember one occasion where I came close to walking out of a church because this particular vicar just, it was just a litany of left-wing claptrap, I thought. And I thought this is not appropriate in a place of worship. Fine, you, you can have an opinion. You, you can try and relate what's going on in the world to lessons from the Bible. Absolutely fine. No problem with that at all. But I think when you stray into the world of party politics, it's a, it's a very dicey position to be in and, and you shouldn't do it. Um, but I think on the big issues of the day, uh, big moral issues of the day, the church ought to um, have a stance. It, it ought to be some sort of moral authority. The, the problem I think that the Anglican church has had over the past 20 or 30 years, it's got so distracted by its own inner machinations that it's become rather irrelevant to the public debate, which I think is a shame. Um, it, it, its morals... It, don't seem to be very deep rooted they, they, at least I mean, the catholic church has many faults but it does seem to at least have some consistency of moral view i don't agree with a lot of its moral views but there is a bit of consistency there. people know what it stands for which i think in the anglican church is possibly a bit a bit grayer yes <clears throat> i'm not um, i'm not a lifelong church goer and so i came into the church when i was about 40 i'm 51 now and those kind of issues uh, circulated me, and then I, I kind of, um, <clears throat> I, I kind of um, settled it in my own mind because it is the Anglican Church, and you have got this extremely broad breadth of breadth of opinion and views and traditions that, for some people, is just a, a nightmare, but for others, it's a, it's a joy. Um, and I think I'm probably somewhere in the middle. <laughs> but there we are. Well, um, look, I mean, if you if you have a, a, an organisation the size of the church, it does have to cater for all tastes. It's a bit like a political party in some ways, in that you don't you can never have a hundred percent of the people agreeing all the time. Uh, a, a political party is a coalition. Um, the, the Labour Party is a coalition from the hard left through to the Blairite left. Uh, or Blairite right, well, however you want to talk about it. the Conservative Party is, is similar. You've got the sort of one nation centrist going uh, across to the sort of hardline Thatcherite right. Um, and they, they can coexist. There are obviously times when there, there, there are times of friction. And the same is true, obviously, in an organisation like the Church of England, because you've got to cater for everybody, whether they're sort of hardline socialists or hardline Thatcherites. Yeah. Ian, I knew it would only be a match of time before we got on to politics. Um, where did your kind of love and interest uh, emanate from? What, what were the things that kind of, you know, some people like music or football. 
what what was it that really got your your passion aroused into politics well i like music and football but um, my, my politics started i suppose in the mid 1970s when anybody who's much younger than me will not remember what the mid to late 70s was like we had the three-day week we had strikes we had i remember sunday afternoons there were power cuts and um, we would have sunday tea by candlelight and it's difficult to imagine nowadays the state that the economy was in. I remember going on a school exchange trip to Germany in 1977 when I was, what, 14. And uh, they would laugh at Britain for its strike record. Um, now, I found all of that quite worrying. I, I thought, well, there must be something better than this. I remember when Dennis Healy, went, who was Chancellor of the Exchequer, went cap in hand to the IMF for, for a loan. I was thinking, well, this is embarrassing. How can a country like Britain be asking the IMF for a loan? And uh, as I said, I was 13 or 14, but I, I had a sort of basic understanding of what, what was going on. It was my grandmother that really sparked my interest in politics, I think. Um, she was quite a regal Queen Mother type figure and um, staunch conservative. And I remember in 1975, on February the 11th, Margaret Thatcher that day was elected leader of the Conservative Party and she was ill in bed. And I raced up the stairs to tell her this and she burst into tears. And bear in mind that she was born in 1894 um, so she was, well, I can't do the, do the maths there, but she was about 80 at the time. And um, she told me later that she burst into tears because she never thought she'd see the day when a woman could lead a political party. And that meant an awful lot to her. And she did actually live to see Margaret Thatcher uh, go into Downing Street. And it was really Margaret Thatcher more than anything, I think, that in inspired my interest in getting involved in politics. I remember in 1978 listening to a speech that she made. I think it was probably her conference speech. And it, she diagnosed all the problems and then came up with the solutions. And at the end of it, I thought, you know, I agree with every single word of that. And that, I think, was the day that I became a conservative. And I was really uh, excited by her premiership. And then in, I got involved in politics at university. It's a very left-wing university in Norwich in those days. And uh, I formed a conservative association because there wasn't one and then got invited to a reception at number 10 Downing Street. Now, this was in January 1983. So I would have been 20. And I mean, for someone like me coming from a small village in Essex, that was a really big thing. I didn't even own a suit at the time. So I had to go and buy a suit. I remember driving down to Westminster in my uh, clapped out Ford Cortina Mark III. Um, and I think I got there like three o'clock in the afternoon, even though the event wasn't until seven. And um, that that evening will stay with me for as long as I live. You sort of I remember walking up those famous stairs with the photographs of all the former prime ministers on the left. And there was this diminutive little figure at the top. And it was Margaret Thatcher. And she's literally five foot three, or it seemed like that anyway. And she had this great knack of, as she shook your hand and sort of said hello, her hand moved to the left to effectively make you walk into the reception room. Yeah. And my abiding memory of that night was, I, I have a very low tolerance for alcohol. In fact, I don't drink at all now, but I remember the, the waiters would come around with these wine glasses. So you take a glass of wine, so I drank one, then I drank two, and I thought I better not have another one. But then you feel a bit awkward without a glass in your hand at these sorts of things. So I took another one. And as I took a sip from it, Margaret Thatcher walked straight in front of me. But it turned out it wasn't wine. It was whiskey and water, which was her favourite tipple. 
and I found myself going, and I almost heaved on Margaret Thatcher's feet. Imagine how my life would have changed if that had happened. Although I suspect if I had done it, she would have been the one that would have wanted to clear it all up. <laughs> but that, yeah, so that was that was that was yeah. my my first awakenings in politics. Yeah. And, in, in 1983, I ran the election campaign in a couple of wards in Norwich in, in, in sort of some fairly rough council estates and went door knocking. And, and of course, that's when you really meet the British public, when you knock on their doors day after day, night after night to try and ascertain who they're going to vote for. And it was one of those elections where um, I mean, she had introduced council house sales and she got huge amounts of support from these these estates it was kind of the red wall equivalent of its day in many ways but I learned so much just from talking to people people whose backgrounds I couldn't possibly have related to even I didn't come from a rich family at all but um, it, it, it stood me in good stead for later times I um I was brought up in a conservative party supporting family uh, and I was growing up during the uh, the miners strike and uh, I was thoroughly compelled by the news obviously it wasn't on the same way it is now but I was compelled by it um, and uh, my brother stood in Burnley as the uh, prospective candidate um, but I find myself in a difficult position I feel and I just going to throw you just bear with me um, I um, um, I'm a vicar and it, uh, when, when lockdown started I began a food bank um, that has, uh, I think it's probably affected me in more ways I've not realised at the moment and we've had seen enormous generosity and uh, an enormous sadness and pain and all that stuff um, and I'm sure you know Giles Fraser, I interviewed I Giles yeah. Fraser um, last week and uh, on his feed it said uh, a, a, a Tory socialist, and I thought, well, maybe I'm one of those. I didn't know they existed. <laughs> but the the point I want to ask you, um, please, Ian, is um, I think talking to people in Burnley, which is a very working class industrial town, there are two views of opinion that people want to give and give more and keep giving, and absolutely think that it is the right thing to do to feed these people not necessarily with a solution and then i think there's this other group of people that think these people need to get off the backsides and go and earn it and do a bit of hard labor and i find myself kind of in the middle where i think there's an argument for both um what do you think ian well, i agree with you i i think that it, it, you can't be absolutist on this there are people um, who view the welfare state as something that they that can just provide for them so they don't need to work. I think that's, that's a comparatively small number of people. The welfare state was always meant to help people who fell on hard times through no fault of their own. Um, and I think Bevan never, when the health service was first started in 1948, Evan never would have anticipated that it would have to uh, fund tattoo removal or, or things like that. It, it was meant to be there for people um, at times of, of real need. And I, I think politicians have allowed things to get out of hand to an extent where people just think the state is there to provide for everything. Now, um, you, you look at the free school meals issue at the moment where on the one hand, you have people saying, well, the, the, the government 
not realising it's actually them as taxpayers, the government should be providing free school meals for kids during holidays. Now, the government's view is, well, we, we actually started free school meals. I mean, bear in mind that the, the, the extent of free school meals happened under the coalition government. It didn't happen under a Labour government. But it was never intended to happen through school holidays. Now, you can make an argument for, in the pandemic that, uh, well, that's what should have happened in lockdown. And it did happen in lockdown. Um, but can, is the state supposed to be taking over the role of parents because in the end, it is parents who are there to provide for their children. Now, in extreme cases where parents are incapable of doing that, of course, then the state intervenes. That, that's quite right. But I, I do question whether it, it really is the role of the state to step in to provide everything in perpetuity in the way that some people are suggesting. Now, I know what will happen here. If the government gives in, and I suspect they will, um, on free school meals up, up until Easter, um, they, they will have lost a huge amount of political capital over it. To my mind, they might as well have given in right at the start because it was obvious where this was going. Um, but there will then come an argument and say, oh, well, we've had it for the last three school holidays. I think we should make it permanent now. Well, I, I don't believe that that is the way forward. Um, food banks exist for a reason. They exist in countries all over Europe. Some, sometimes people seem to suggest that this is a uniquely British invention. Food banks have existed in Germany since the 1990s, in France also. And yet somehow the narrative has grown up that Britain is on its own on this. And it's just simply not the case. Um, Germany is considered to be the most successful economy in Europe and has had more food banks than we have for donkey's years. Now, private charity, I think, is a good thing, but there are people who will argue that private charity should not exist and it should be the state that provides for everything. Well, I don't want to live in a society where that happens. I think it would be an incredibly, um, it would be a very stifling society in many ways. I do believe in a small state, but when you have times of crisis, the state is there to intervene. That's what's happened in the pandemic, or certainly in the economy. And it will, for probably for the rest of my adult life, we're going to live with an economy that is very different to the one that I've grown up with and that, that I've grown used to. I recognise that the state is going to have to play a major role in reviving parts of the economy, something that, as a Thatcherite, I never thought I would hear myself saying. Thank, thank you, Ian. Um, I'd just like to just push on with this um what i see and what i sometimes feel is is um in politics um is a, a lack of empathy um and compassion um and i think that possibly creeps into society in the way that what strikes me about the people that are receiving these food parcels is that from people in elevated places speak wonderful rhetoric of all different political persuasions but they seem to to lack um real empathy and and pastoral care of our most vulnerable people and i don't i don't know if you can give us a solution to that but do you think it stems from the political landscape i mean i, I think about this in, uh, issue with lockdown is that it, it strikes me that Boris has announced lockdown and the, and Keir Starmer's jumped all over it. Um, you know, and it, it just seems to be, everything seems to be a blame game in, in politics and 
and things at the moment. I don't know if you can make any comment. What I've just said, it might have been nonsense. Well, I mean, that, that's politics for you. That there will always be a degree of blame. Um, I think there's actually been less of that over the certainly over the initial stages of the pandemic, but the government has made mistakes. The opposition is there to hold them to account for those mistakes. I don't agree with you on lack of empathy or pastoral care because people never see what politicians do in their constituencies because it's basically a one-to-one relationship between the politician and their constituent. And for example, um, I, Anne Whittacombe always tells the story of her proudest moment in politics. It was nothing to do with anything she did in Parliament. It was when she got a constituent out of jail in Morocco. She spent hours and hours and hours and her own money. This was in the days before you could actually even claim anything back. She went to Rabat to try and persuade the Moroccan government to try and release this guy who's a lorry, a truck driver who had been imprisoned on spurious drug offences. And everyone apparently knew that he hadn't committed them. The Moroccans knew he hadn't. Uh, Everyone else did, but nobody was willing to do anything about it. So she went out to Rabat at her own expense and um, persuaded the Moroccan government to release him. And then the Moroccan government fell. So she had to then do it all over again. Now, in the end, she did get him out. And she said that the the moment that she phoned his, his wife to say, Derek's out of prison, he'll be home tomorrow, That was the proudest moment of her political career. Now, every MP has got some similar anecdote to tell. They don't make the papers. Um, I know from my time as a candidate in North Norfolk in 2003 to five, um, I helped a huge amount of people um, through various sort of traumas in their lives. And it, it does depend to an extent on your own make up your own personal characteristics if you are a naturally empathetic person then you are going to get a reputation as a good constituency mp the the mp that i was fighting norman lamb liberal democrat he was brilliant at that sort of thing and was a brilliant constituency mp and i had to try and match that and i think i did but there are look mps represent the the rest of the human race there are good mps there are bad mps there are hard-faced mps there are very caring mps there are corrupt mps there are very honest mps just as there are in the clergy i suspect just as there are in the teaching profession or the nursing profession but but what about when you know when when you see these things uh, uh, i mean uh, our own mp uh, conservative mp the the vitriol and and uh, the abuse he's been sent since the announcement of the refusal to extend the food voucher scheme. But then also in uh, Angela Rayner in, in the House ref- using you know, derogatory terms, it's that kind of thing that I just think spills over sometimes, but, 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 but maybe I'm wrong. Um, well, yeah. it, it, look, politics is a passionate thing. If you, if you have strong beliefs and you stand by your beliefs, inevitably you are going to attract some vitriol, particularly in these days of Twitter and social media. Um, I get it every day. Uh, it's, it's horrible sometimes. Um, I've just written a book about, uh, about it called Why Can't We All Just Get Along, which sounds very motherhood and apple pie. But our, the state of our public discourse has declined hugely over the past 10 or 20 years. Yeah. And that's partly due to the internet. But of course, the internet has been a great thing for democratizing uh, society because people now yeah. have a real voice that they can express. Sometimes they go over the top in expressing their views. Well, I'd kind of rather have the internet than not have it for all sorts of different reasons. But you shouldn't have to accept the level of personal vitriol. But if, you, if you're anyone who is remotely in public life now, you, you can be, I mean, even if Mother Teresa was alive and on Twitter, 
I mean, she would be getting it as well. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Ian, I'm mindful of time and I, and I really appreciate your time, but there's a couple of things I just want to uh, run by you. And, uh, and I nearly cynically was going to say, what do you make of the leader of the opposition, Marcus Rashford? But more, ser <laughs> more, more seriously, uh, what is your assessment of the Labour Party at the moment? Do you think they're, they're making strides um, under Keir Starmer or not? Well, I think they have made progress. I, I think he came into, into office at a very, very difficult time, right at the beginning of lockdown. And he wouldn't have wanted to do it in those circumstances, but it has given him time. Nobody really cares what the Labour Party policy is on education or the environment or anything at the moment, because everyone is just obsessed by COVID, quite right too. So he has bought some time. I think he would settle for where he is. The opinion poll ratings, both his personal ratings and the Labour Party's ratings ha have gone up over the past few months. From, and let's bear in mind that the election resulted last December was the worst since 1935 for the Labour Party. So they've got a long way to climb back. Now, I think Keir Starmer is a slightly charisma-free zone. But if you look at it, if you go back to 1945, every other prime minister has been a dull one. You go from a charismatic one to a dull one to a charismatic one to a dull one. Um, so he's in a good position in a way to succeed Boris Johnson or, or just on that basis. He, he does have an advantage in that he, he looks like a prime minister. You could imagine him walking over the threshold of number 10 in a way that you couldn't imagine Jeremy Corbyn or Neil Kinnock doing so. So I think he's got a lot going for him. But of course, people's memories are very long. All the anti-Semitism stuff that has come up again recently, um, people find that quite difficult to get over. And although he, his reaction to that was absolutely right, I think, um, that lives long in people's memories. And there'll be a lot of, there's a lot of people who are politically homeless at the moment, a lot of people wanting uh, Keir Starmer to win so they could actually put their cross in a box against um, a Labour Party uh, leader who they think does look like a prime minister and they haven't had one of those for quite a long time I think Ed Miliband suffered from that in in some ways yeah. uh, as well so they've got a huge mountain to climb to win the 2024 election it may be that Boris Johnson isn't Tory party leader by that time who knows yeah. and yeah. so it's very difficult to predict an outcome but I, I think he gets a B plus for the start that he's made Kirstar yeah. and in terms of in terms of Boris uh Ian, um, is he is he a buffoon or is he a genius or a bit of both? Well, he's a bit of both. He he has curbed his buffoonery a little bit. Maybe not enough. Some people would say, but Boris got to where he is by being Boris. If you try and if you try and stop people being themselves, it's never a good idea in politics. And obviously, he's had to be incredibly serious, particularly given that he nearly died at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, now, he's made a lot of wrong decisions, I, I think. In some ways, I've always thought he's a lucky politician, um, but I think his luck has started to run out. He thought he would be the Brexit Prime Minister, the person who took us out of the European Union, got all sorts of free trade agreements, and would lead us into the sunlit uplands of, of Brexit. Well, he's not going to go down as that, even though it was an achievement to get us out. And I do think there will be a free trade agreement. That's not what he will be remembered for. All prime ministers are remembered for one thing. With Margaret Thatcher, it's probably the Falklands War. With Tony Blair, um, it, it would have been Iraq. With Gordon Brown, the, the financial crisis. Uh, David Cameron, the Brexit referendum. With Boris Johnson, it will be COVID. 
and um, I don't think, where, well, certainly where we are today, I don't think he's going to get terribly high marks for his handling of COVID, even though it's very fair to point out that other countries have had just as big a problems as we have. And, and nobody, I don't think, could say that any country has handled it perfectly with the possible exception of New Zealand. But you can't really compare a country like Britain with a country like no. New Zealand. Ian, I've, I've loved talking to you. You're, you're, you're an interesting guy. You've got so much um, to bring to the conversation. Um, just um, quickly on America, we, you know, as we record this, we've got the election literally around the corner. Uh, how do you see that playing out? It's very difficult to say because opinion polls don't really count so much in America because it's such a vast country. Uh, all the opinion polls show that Trump is behind, even in the swing states. He seems to be behind in most of them. But then again, um, Hillary Clinton was way ahead at this point in the electoral cycle last time. So it's incredibly difficult to predict that what would happen. Um, I think it may be a lot closer than people think because of the shy Trump supporting phenomenon, where people just won't admit that they're going to support Donald Trump. That happened last time. I think it'll happen this time. Um, I mean, I don't know how anyone with a conscience could vote for Donald Trump. But then again, he's so lucky in his opponent. Um, he calls him Sleepy Joe, and you can see why. Um, how, how a country of 360 million people can come up with these two candidates, I do not know. And if I, if I was an American, I suppose I would vote for Biden, but with a very, very heavy heart, because yeah. he's not somebody who I think is up to the job. Um, but at least... He wouldn't be as divisive as Trump has been. And, and a president of the United States is not there to be divisive. They're head of state. They're meant to be a unifying force. And Donald Trump has been the exact opposite of that in virtually every way that you can think of. Yeah. Thank you, Ian. Now, just going back to shy supporters, um, you said earlier that you like your football and your music. Uh, do you follow a team? I do. West Ham United. Okay, another Claret and Blue side. Yes, exactly. have, you ever, have you ever been to Turf Moor? I haven't, no. I keep no. saying to Alastair Campbell that he should take me, but uh, no, I never have. Yes, yeah, it's, it's a lovely traditional old ground. I think you'd enjoy it. And, and music, finally, Ian, what kind of music floats your boat? Well, I have a pretty eclectic musical taste. Some would say a terrible musical taste. Um, I Tomorrow, actually, I'm interviewing Cliff Richard for an hour. I've got every single Cliff Richard song ever released on my phone. Um, I like Meatloaf, Roxette, Sparks, Pet Shop Boys, Asia, Erasure. Basically, trashy pop. Yeah, okay. Well, you're, you say you're an Essex boy. Well, I, I grew up uh, falling in love and still love the music at Depeche Mode. So, um, you know, not quite pop anymore, but good stuff. Ian, it's been really lovely chatting to you. I really, like I say, I appreciate your time. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to hit the stop record button and then I can edit this. But um, Ian, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day. And thanks for joining us on the Godcast. Well, thank you very much.